Hello, friends. My guest on today's show is Sam Alberry. Sam Alberry, I think many of you know who he is. He is a Christian. He's a pastor. He's a speaker. He's an apologist. He's an author of an incredible uh, incredible book called Is God Anti-Gay? Is God Anti-Gay? How would you answer that? Is God anti-gay? Do the scriptures reveal a God who is anti-gay? What does anti-gay mean? Sam Alberry is amazing. He's super thoughtful. Um, I've gotten to know him over the years. We shared a meal just last spring, right, right when COVID was crash, like starting to crash down on us. Me and Sam were out at a Actually, a British pub, which is funny because he's, he's British. We were at a British pub in Nashville, Tennessee, and we finally got to connect. And he is just an amazing individual. I just have so much respect for Sam. Um, in the spectrum of the sexuality evangelical conversation, he would lean more conservative. Um, and so some people who I also respect think he's too conservative, and I um, I don't know. I, I, I just love Sam. I, I love his perspective. I appreciate his wisdom and I love talking to him. He's just super humble, super gracious, super honest, super raw, super real. He's a perfect fit for this podcast. I can't wait for you to listen to this conversation. So please welcome to Theology in the Raw, back to Theology in the Raw for the second time, the one and only Sam Alberry. All right. Hey, friends. I am here with my friend, uh, Sam Alberry. Sam is a pastor, a regular speaker, um, a, a, an amazing writer. Um, he's spoken all around the world on the topic of sexuality, and he's become a friend over the years. Sam, thanks so much for uh, venturing onto my YouTube channel. Well, I was, I was looking for something else and just stumbled into it. So uh, <laughs> that's good to be with you. That's awesome. So let's begin with the question. And this question, I mean, it's probably one of the top searched uh, questions on the internet. Is the Bible anti-gay? What would you say about that? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. And and no one syllable answer will quite do justice to what, what we have in the Bible. So the, the best answer I can give is to say if there's, if there's no hope for gay people, there's no hope for anyone. So all of us in the Bible are put in the same boat. We're all fallen. We're, we're all broken. That includes in our sexuality and all of us have this amazing offer of life in Jesus extended to us so that's the short version yeah now now you are same sex attracted i mean so you're coming at this um very much there there could be a desire for you to not see the bible that way and i know a lot of people wrestle with that they 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 do go to the scriptures and maybe because of their own story there might be a temptation to say, I don't know, is there a different way to read the text of scripture? But you, you, as many people know, do hold to a so-called traditional sexual ethic definition of marriage. Can you, can you walk us through your own specifically or theological journey? Like how, was there a time when you were wrestling with the scriptures, when you wanted to see it differently, when you 
did see it as being kind of like offensive to your own kind of story or tell us about that journey yeah it it really st- i became a christian when i turned 18 um i was already aware at that point obviously of my own sexual kind of feelings and of the shape of them um when i when i became a christian what happened was i'd, I'd heard the message of, of the gospel and i became so overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of jesus that i felt i can completely trust this guy with my entire life and I, I will do a far worse job of running my life than he will. So let's let's just follow him. I didn't at that point know what he taught on any of these things. I hadn't studied that far, had no idea. But I knew that whatever Jesus said, it would be okay because it was Jesus. Mm. And I knew he would be good. Mm. So I, I think that conviction and confidence in the goodness of Jesus has steadied me and held me ever since um it meant when i then did begin to see some of the the hard things the bible does have to say about human sexuality i didn't find it offensive Hmm. um i found it hard and challenging and convicting and, and humbling but i i don't think i ever really resented it because i knew that any words jesus had for me would be good words and I also knew that he he wasn't treating me any differently than he was treating any other disciple. He says to all of us, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross. So it didn't feel like I was kind of getting a worse deal than everybody else was. Okay. Um, so as I kind of grew in my understanding of what the Bible says, it, it always, to me, has been clear. I, I never kind of felt as though there was ambiguity mm-hmm. um, in what the Bible says on these things. And challenging, difficult, at times really confounding, but I've always trusted that it's good. Mm. So the wrestle has been in living it more yeah. than it's been in accepting it, I think. I want to come back to that. That's I, I get that a lot. a lot. I know a lot of people who are wrestling with their sexuality, They I, I often hear people say, the, the biggest question I have in life is not, is it true? Because when you look at scripture, again, I don't think it's that unclear, despite <laughs> some people's opinions. Um, but yeah. is it livable? What does this look like yeah. practically in the day-to-day, the year-to-year, when I'm 70 years old? What does this look like for me? And I think those are really, really mm-hmm. good pastoral questions. I want to come back to that. But um, what do you think? Because you, you also speak, you you are an apologist would you do would you describe yourself that way i mean you do find yourself in context where you're having to defend a point of view what are some major pushbacks you hear from let's just say inside maybe the church or people let's just say broadly you know christianity um what are some of the main pushbacks to the traditional view that you see that you encounter often and and how would you respond to some of those yeah i think one of the ones is what you've just said is is this actually livable um is this is this going to be good for people um i think that's probably the main one and it's it's normally put in a far more negative uh, kind of form you know isn't this christian sexual ethic harmful um isn't it responsible for you know gay teenagers feeling suicidal mm-hmm. I, I think that is the most significant question i get and i hear that from within the church and outside the church um so that that's not a uniquely mm-hmm. non-Christian question. That's that's something 
troubling many believers as well. Um, so that that would be that would be one. Um, how, how do you respond to that? I'm curious because I, I get that. I would say that's probably the number one question that I get too. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's a really it's a really important question. Um, so my my response would be, I think part of the response is, and it will depend on the context and who's asking it and where they're at and if they're in you know distress as they're asking it all these things will frame how we answer it in terms of our tone but part of my answer is that the moment our culture says that your sexuality is the most central and defining thing about you and that fulfilling your sexuality is the highest virtue in life you are raising the stakes incredibly high you are making sexual fulfillment a life or death matter you are making it the be-all and end-all. And part of the liberation of, of the Christian message on this isn't so much where the boundaries are, are placed for sexual behavior, but in the way that sexual fulfillment is so dethroned by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It just doesn't matter to the same extent. It's It's not nothing. Our sexuality is is deep it's significant it's it's so personal but actually i think the, the the gospel helps us put it in a much healthier sense of perspective and proportion and so we don't make this one aspect of our humanness the kind of big defining aspect that everything else about our well-being and and happiness ends up being contingent on so part of me wants to point the question back and say Actually, I think it's our secular culture that has a lot of blood on its hands. We're not the ones who are saying this is the life and death issue. Mm -hmm. So that that's part of it. But I, I think I'd, I'd then want to walk into some of the things Jesus says about who he is and where true satisfaction is found. I love that the woman at the well in John 4, um, you know, something within us that needs quenching. Or Jesus being the bread of life and, and promising to give us true satisfaction. So that's the sort of area I would yeah. I'll probably go trying to explain that. I've often found too with with the harmful question, you know, that the traditional sexual ethic is harmful to anybody who is gay or attracted to the same sex and trying to follow Jesus. Um, oftentimes, when I have somebody maybe tease that out, they start describing a scenario where you know a parent parents find out their kids gay so they kick them out of the house or they drag them to like reparative therapy and force them to go through stuff and and um they end up really quickly not describing the traditional sexual ethic but abuses to maybe mm. christians who might also hold to a sexual ethic but they're doing things and, and that aren't that aren't necessarily directly from their sexual ethic it's more out of yeah. uh maybe a fear or, or just a twisted kind of application of, of, of the sexual ethic, you know, um, it'd be like, yeah, you that's... know, Christians, you know, reading the Bible and then going and committing genocide because they kind of misread yeah. the book of Joshua. It's like, well, that doesn't mean we rip Joshua out of the whatever, but like, it means we need to understand it better and say, that's a poor application of something that happened in a unique time in history in the old Testament. So I, yeah, that's really good. That's, yeah. that's a really good point because <laughs> Undoubtedly, Christians have been harmful yeah. in various times and places, and we need to acknowledge that. And as you say, 
show the the difference between that and authentic Christianity. Um, So you you do, you hear stories of of parents disowning kids or bullying going on, those sorts of things. None of those things are Christian. Right. Um, I feel like I I hear about Westboro Baptist Church less than I used to. I think three or four years ago, people would often point to Westboro Baptist Church as the kind of the example of this is where... (laughs) Christian extremism takes you and maybe they're just less on the radar these days. But I, I always used to say that what, what those guys are extreme about isn't Christian. Right. If there, if there really was such a thing as Christian extremism, it would be wonderful if we were extreme about giving grace to others and loving our enemies and, and showing mercy and caring for the poor. That would be wonderful. Right. Right, right. What are some other, so let me, just one more, like another question, pushback you often get uh, when you're talking about this. Um, um, I mean, one of the questions is, if, if it's someone who has some biblical literacy, there may be a question based on, you know, does the Bible actually say that? Have we misunderstood it? All those. So there's a whole raft of questions that would would come under that kind of banner. Um Another one would be, why does God care about this? Why does God care who I sleep with? Um, if, if given the, the state of the world right now, yeah, um, surely He has bigger things to care about than what we do with our, our genitals in the privacy of our own bedrooms. Right. So that that yeah. would be another one. Yeah. Um, I hear I hear that one a lot actually at the moment. How do you? How do you respond to that? Um. I, Again, I, I will say that God cares about who we sleep with because he cares about who's doing the sleeping. And it's good news that God cares about us. And if anything, the Me Too movement has shown us that what we what we do with our genitals in the privacy of our own bedrooms mm-hmm. actually can be very destructive on other people. And if we care about it enough to try and, you know, have a whole cultural movement and change on the issue then clearly it really does matter as an issue it's not just a physical thing yeah um it's far far more than that and therefore god should care about it and it's it's good news for us that he does right and my favorite passage on this i mean it's so challenging but i find it so dignifying is where jesus talks about adultery in the sermon on the mountain if you if you commit adultery and if you look at someone with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. That's challenging when it, you think about the person doing the looking. But it's also very reassuring and dignifying when you think about the person who's being looked at. Mm. That, that Jesus regards them as having a dignity so precious to him that even if someone violates it in the privacy of their own mind, that's that's an issue for Jesus. So... I always say to people, you will not find anyone on the planet more challenging when it comes to human sexuality than Jesus, but you will also not find someone more dignifying mm. as well. So, yeah, it's yeah. interesting that those two kind of push well, what you said earlier or summarize what you summarized earlier with some pushbacks. And then this recent one, they kind of cancel each other out because one says yeah. sexuality is everything. It's so core to my existence. Yeah. Right. So, OK, so it's a big deal. And then. 
people say, well, why does God care about what I do? It's like, wait a minute. Do you want, <laughs> is this a significant yeah. part of your life or not? Because if it is a significant part of life, as some people make it out to be way more than maybe God would be, then of course God cares about what you do with it. Otherwise he's not a loving God. And so. Yeah, we're, we're not consistent. Not, no. Not, not from, <laughs> and when, we, all, when, we all have inconsistencies, you know, but I think especially in this conversation, I do see quite a few come up. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've learned more and more too. I mean, how, uh, let's just say, broadly speaking, sexual relationships, how societally impactful they are. And we saw, you know, you see it in like the Roman Empire when sexual relationships just kind of had no kind of guardrails. That was one of the things that caused the crumbling of the very Roman Empire from the inside out. And we've seen this. Um, this is something Camille Paglia, a feminist lesbian scholar, has pointed out that the. <laughs> When the when the sexual fabric of society kind of starts to crumble, so goes society as as well. So you can't just say that our that human sexual expression is kind of irrelevant to society as a whole. It's a very it is a very public. It's not just a, what we do in our uh, bedrooms. It just doesn't work that way. Um, yeah, and I've, I've only just thought of this, but we, you know, you look at all the kind of gossipy celebrity magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not, you know, they, they seem to be all about who's sleeping with who. <laughs> it's it's not about who's who's buddies with who, who's who's friends with who. It's always, you know, who's who's sleeping with someone else. So apparently, we care we care about who they sleep with, right? Enough to buy whole magazines, kind of telling us all about it or claiming to. So, yeah, yeah we're not consistent. We never what, were. What would you say? <laughs> I I hear this a lot. I'm a, I, I hear this accusation a lot towards people like yourself who hold to a traditional sexual ethic while experiencing some level of same-sex attraction. Um, how would you respond to the internalized homophobia accusation? Oh, poor Sam. You know, he was just been brainwashed by the conservative evangelical mm-hmm. church, and he has this internal hatred of, you know, being same-sex attracted. How, how do you respond? I Well, I've got my own thoughts, but I, I'm... I don't get that personally. I'm curious how you would respond yeah. to that. I'm sure you get it. <laughs> no one has ever actually said that to my face. I'm sure many people have said it behind my back, but it, curiously, I've never had someone actually say that to my face in a, in a kind of either in a one-on-one conversation or in a, a kind of more public context. So hmm. I don't have a sort of a rehearsed kind of way of thinking about it, but I mean, I one response would be to marvel that they're able to know what's been going on in my kind of interior psychology over the last 25 years. Um, I think I, I would I would give them a bit of credit by saying, yeah, there are desires I have actually that I hate. Mm. Um, and I, I worry about anybody who doesn't have any hatred for any of their their kind of desires, lusts, whatever, those people tend to end up being on Netflix documentaries. So all of us have, have some kind of, wherever we draw the boundaries in life, all of us have some kind of internal breaking mechanism, mm-hmm. which kind of says, hang on, that's, whoa, 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 that was, that was way too far. We need to kind of, we need to not go there. We need to not think about that. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's only 
fundamentally harmful if sexual, full sexual self-expression that's unfettered is our ultimate good. Mm. And again, I, I don't know people who will actually go that far and say that. We, we all have this sense that we do need to edit something of our own internal sexual desires. Um, so yeah, I'll probably say something like that. Um, yeah, no, that's good. I, yeah, I, I often see like, uh, you know, in the wake of the sexual revolution and the sixties and onward, like where we've been encouraged to explore our sexuality, find freedom, less, like you said, editing, less, less guardrails. But then I asked the question, where, where, where so how's, and we've been doing that really well, <laughs> sometimes even inside yeah. the church. Where's that gotten us? Yeah. Sex trafficking is a multi what trillion dollar industry. Poor the porn epidemic is an epidemic. Um, sex outside of marriage leads to guess what? Children outside of marriage, and we know nobody questions that that's not good for um, you know. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. you know, sing single parents or kids that are orphaned or whatever. I mean, on and on and on. Um, even the sexual dysfunction, even from. Christians who are just even wrestling with porn and, and, and just the damage and destruction that that has. Um, so I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's a great sociological, just sociological argument to be made that more sexual freedom leads to more human flourishing. Like, I think that we've tried that experiment and I think there's objective evidence. I think, I mean, I, to say like maybe some guardrails, you know, are good for society. Um, yeah. Ed, Ed Shaw, who I know, you know, yeah. um, Dear, dear brother and friend, he, he, he is way better read than I am. Um, and I know Ed, Ed has said on num numerous occasions that reading secular literature by gay writers, mm -hmm. one of the kind of themes he sees a lot these days is why are we all so unhappy? We, we've ostensibly got the thing we were asking for. Yeah. Why are we so unhappy? So I, I think part of the answer is, you know, how, as you say, how, how's it going? <laughs> um, is it dem are people demonstrably psychologically healthier right. because of all these sexual freedoms that are being granted and, and all the rest of it? So, so yeah, poor, miserable Sam, perhaps, but there's a lot of gay writers saying that they are kind of poor, miserable them. So it's it's not it's a it's an accusation that has some legitimacy in more than one direction. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I forgot to mention this. This is uh, Sam's book, Is God Anti-Gay? Um, subtitle, you probably can't see the subtitle. Uh, well, there it is right there. Um, is God Anti-Gay and Other Questions About Homosexuality, the Bible, and Same-Sex Attraction? This book came out in 2013. This is a while ago. What I it's an artifact. <laughs> <It's an, laughs> this was, I feel like, in the kind of renewed wave of church discussions in this conversation, there's been an, as you know, an academic conversation happening for three decades since 1980, I think was a turning point um, when a lot of scholars were kind of revisiting. What does the Bible say about homosexuality in particular? Um, but I would say around, I think in the wake of Wesley Hill's book, I think his yeah. came out in 2008, 2009, and then that began the last 12 years or so, uh, some really helpful books coming out. Th this book is unique in that, I mean, I kid you not, it is 85 pages. Because <laughs> some books I have on my shelf here all around, they could be three, four, five hundred 500 pages. Some are really 
you know, tough, tough to get through. And this is, I think, the shortest, most concise guide I've ever read. And the thing is, even though it's really short, it feels like it's not short because you miss a lot of stuff. I mean, obviously, I'm sure you could have gone way deeper into many things, but you were just so concise. Like, you just hit the big points uh, on this question, is God anti-gay, which is a very relevant question. So, um, yeah. Yeah, this and is- there's a... There's a reason for that. I mean, the, A, the publisher wanted it to be short because yeah. it's part of a series on various questions that people ask. Um, this is this is too important a topic simply to be left to books that people won't finish reading. Yeah. So I wanted there to be something, and, and obviously, as you said, there, there's been so many wonderful books that have come out since then. Yours is one I've, I highly recommend. Um but I didn't want this to be a book that would intimidate anybody mm-hmm. um, because, as you know, this is something people wrestle with in their younger teenage years and even earlier than that. And um, so it needed to be something that, that wouldn't scare people off. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's gotten great feedback. I, th- I remember, I mean, every time I look, it seems like a lot of people are very aware of it and reading it. And it's been helpful for so many uh, people. So, um well, I'm, I'm deeply grateful to God, and, and he's he's in on the private joke that he and I have, which is that writing that book was an ordeal. Um, huh. I just thought, I'm never, I'm never going to get to the finish line. I'm never going to pull this off. It's too personal and painful to write about. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was also aware of, you know, how's this going to read to my non-Christian Right. Very secular minded friends and family around me. How's it going to read to the the 14 year old youth group Christian who's struggling with their own sexuality? So (laughs) the fact that it even got published, I think, is 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 just a sign of God's grace. And and if it's been useful to people, then I know that's not down to my ingenuity, but to to God's kindness, because it was a it was a battle to write. Yeah, I bet. I mean, it's harder to write something so concise without missing anything than it is to just... Yeah, I, <laughs> I wrote a normal length book, basically, and then had to edit it down to, okay. as you say, 85 yeah. pages. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, it's the, the biggest question you get is not um, necessarily about biblical passages, but practically, what does this look like for somebody who, um, for whatever reason... Um, you know, is attracted to the same sex and they're trying to follow Jesus in that. What would you say, just if I can just get personal, like what would have been the, maybe the biggest challenges in your own life? I mean, you're not just a Christian, you're, you're a pastor, you're a leader, you're a speaker. I mean, um, it, man, I, I, I bet you probably face a lot of challenges. What, what would be some, some maybe unique challenges that you've had to face over the years? Yeah. Um, and some of these will be common to others as well. I, I think that one of the significant challenges was trying to figure out the, the appropriate ways of finding intimacy and community and friendship and what that should look like and, and what, what what is the healthy version of that look like. Um, that, that's been a significant challenge. I've had to do a lot of thinking about that, um, not just thinking about what the Bible says, but thinking about how I'm wired and where the the pitfalls are and all those sorts of things. So that, that's been challenging. And as, as life has become more, a little more itinerant in my ministry, um, 
that's become even more important because you, you've got to have that that kind of community in which you're anchored and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I think the other thing, particularly being someone who speaks on this, is <laughs> part of my message is that this is this is not my identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore trying to trying to honor that whilst not having it take over the entirety of my ministries. Okay. Yeah, that, that's a significant challenge. I want to be thinking and writing and speaking about other things just just for my insanity. If I if I only thought about this one issue, yeah, I think it would just get me out of proportion. So I've always tried to be anchored in local church ministry. Um, I, I feel my deepest calling is to be a pastor. And I hope what I do on this issue is a is an expression of that. That's that's how I see it. Mm. Um and that that's helped as well. It, it's nice to be in a church family that that just knows me as Sam and isn't thinking, oh, that's Sam, you know, same sex attracted guy or whatever. Um, and where I can just teach the Bible and, and uh, rummage around in, in God's word and, yeah. and just that focus to it. <laughs> I love the British phrases, man. The rummage around in God's word. That's only something a Brit would say. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys have that way of just those picturesque phrase i love it um um on the identity piece i mean i know and this is something i know evangelicals have debated and, and i i've i've enjoyed the conversation because i think both sides are saying something valuable um p- particularly surrounding the word gay and and you yeah. it's not your preferred term can you speak into and i just had i had greg coles on of a couple of weeks ago and, yeah. and he's comfortable with the term for various reasons. And uh, from your perspective, what, what would be some reasons why you don't find the specific term gay helpful to describe your own journey or identity? Yeah. Um, thank you. It's in, in my experience, the word gay tends to, to mean much more than the shape of your sexual attractions. It, it tends to speak to, again, it's an identity word for, for so many people that this is not, something that describes me it's something that defines me and it's it carries so much baggage with it that is that is beyond simply i happen to be attracted to other men mm-hmm. so i've been hesitant to use it simply because I, I don't want to unwittingly communicate a whole load of things that are not true mm-hmm. and particularly i i don't believe that my sexual the pattern of my own sexual attractions is is a matter of ontology and i think that the language of being gay kind of steps into that space so those would be my main concerns um so i'm I'm very cautious about that very hesitant there have been maybe two or three times that i can think of in my life where i've used the term and that's almost always because i've been in a a kind of missional context where that's just the only term available and then I had to immediately caveat it. I did something with the BBC a few years ago and again, they weren't going to understand the whole same-sex right. attraction. That that may have changed now. I think some of these other terms are becoming a little more mainstream, but um, that's my main hesitancy. I, I don't want to launch a theological airstrike on every single Christian who does use that term every single time they use it. Yeah. Um, I think particularly for those who come to faith within the kind of LGBT world, the most natural starting point will say, oh, I'm a gay Christian now. 
Um, and I think that that's entirely understandable, but it wouldn't be my desired destination point okay. for how that person thinks of themselves. I do find younger people, for right or wrong, or seem to be a little more comfortable with it, whereas um, older uh, same-sex attracted Christians t typically – um, the, the, the term does seem to carry more political, cultural, social, at least in their own awareness, this, this, yeah, it's harder for them to embrace. I just had a, um, yeah. conversation with, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on his name now, so I'm not going to butcher it, but I have a friend of mine who, you know, radical conversion, I mean, knee deep in the LGBT community, radical non-Christian, you know, and a real, real radical conversion, like overnight kind of thing. And for him, the term, he just could not separate gay from the entire web of, you know, his first 30 years of life or however old he was. Um, I think yeah. that's significant. My, my observation, and I, I wouldn't want to extend it beyond simply my observation, is that the people I know who are most troubled by Christians using the, the language of being gay are people like the friend you just mentioned, who yeah. that was their world, that was their life, and... Yeah, they they don't want they they're deeply troubled by other Christians kind of stepping into that language space. Yeah. Whereas the people I know who who seem to be most eager to are people who never really were part of that world. Yeah. That that so I would that say that's gen in my experience that's generally the case, and that's that's interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. So processing. So that. I I suspect on the part of the person who's been converted out of that, there probably is some oversensitivity. Mm. But I wonder if at the same time, the people who are eager to kind of adopt that language, who never were in that world, whether in their case, there may be some naivety. Yeah. I'm sure there's a bit of both. Yeah. I'm interested, you mentioned in passing the missional context, that that is one area where you and I both encounter this idea um, from the secular world that is has had this real skewed kind of... Westboro Baptist only version of Christianity so that simply to be gay, meaning let's just say to be attract, if you're simply experienced same sex attraction, you categorically cannot be a Christian because God hates your very existence. So I found in some missional context like that, when somebody says, no, I am, and they'll use the word gay and I'm sold out for Jesus. Um, Sometimes, uh, missionally speaking, using the very term gay in that context can deconstruct somebody's assumptions about, you know, the impossibility of a same-sex attracted gay person to become a Christian. Is that kind of what you're hinting at? I, I have found in, in some missional context, and maybe it's not even a permanent identity or whatever, but in certain contexts, it certainly does seem to have more power than to say, I wrestle with same-sex attraction, which isn't yeah. going to have the same missional kind of weight, um, in communicating yeah, I've, I've only tended to use the term when I have felt that there is no other term available that that person would be remotely familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if it's a, a secular non-Christian, I'm already an anomaly enough. <laughs> if I start using language they've never heard of, it's just going to throw them and confuse them even more. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that's those are the only times I think I've I've had to do that. It, it's when it's been the least worst. Yeah. Forward, so I yeah. Uh, two more questions, and we'll wrap things up. Uh, number one, what, what are 
What are some things, some maybe changes in the church you would like to see in how they are approaching this conversation? I know that's a huge question and you're probably like, which church, what context, but just just give a general kind of observation. Like what are some things you would like to see done in the church as it's beginning to and continuing to engage this conversation? That's a great question. And certainly, and you will know this better than I, there, there have been some wonderful changes already. So let's, let's celebrate what's already happened. And I've been speaking on this publicly for about, I don't know, seven years now, probably six, seven years. So I'm already sensing the change just from the types of questions I get asked when I visit churches. And, and by and large, that's, that's a positive shift. People are more aware of this issue pastorally Mm-hmm. than they may have been five, ten years ago. It was a political, cultural war issue then. Now they're recognizing it's a pastoral issue too. Mm-hmm. Um, there are still significant swathes of the evangelical world that I think is is not where it needs to be yet, um, and where this form of sexual sin seems to be treated very differently to other forms of sexual sin. So we, we've got to have consistency, mm-hmm. and I still see some churches where, actually I visited one a few months ago, where you could be an adulterer, mm. but you mustn't be gay. Mm. Um, and I've, I've, I still see parts of the Christian world where a parent, if they were honest, would rather their child was heterosexual and ungodly than same-sex attracted and committed to the teaching of Jesus. Wow. Yeah. And that, that should not be. That is so, that is so warped. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got a long way to go, I'm, I'm sure. But um, overall, I'm encouraged more than I'm discouraged. There's definitely a lot more, a lot more conversations happening. I mean, you're speaking into it. I mean, I, the ministry I run is defined by the church wanting to have yeah. this conversation and, and we can't keep up with, with the demand. So, um, no, exactly. And like you, my, my, my vision is for the church, the church is what's going to make the difference on this. Um, and the, the more that, and I know our heart is the same on this, the more the church embodies grace and truth yeah. and, is is living proof of the hundredfold promise Jesus gives us in Mark 10. That is what's going to win our world over on this, more than political arguing and, and everything else and outrage on Twitter. Right, right. <laughs> outrage on Twitter. Um, last question. I speak directly to, let's just say, a younger Christian. Maybe they're a teenager mm-hmm. um, wrestling. with their, They're experiencing same-sex attraction. They're maybe scared to death to tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Maybe they stumbled upon this YouTube video because they're Googling the title. What would you say to that person who truly deep down does want to follow Jesus but is wondering, yeah. what does the Bible say about this? Does God hate me? How? What does my life even look like? Um, yeah, speak into that as a as a pastor. <laughs> yeah, my, my heart goes out because that – the only reason that wasn't me was because I wasn't a Christian when I was – you know, before I was 18. But had I been, that would have been me. And I've I've experienced enough of that angst as a post-teenager to imagine what it must be like to experience it as as someone who is a teenager. 
the, the most important thing is just that word of reassurance. And if there's no hope for gay people, there's no hope for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, if Jesus isn't good news for for that person, he's not good news for any of us. Um, if that person is beyond the pale, if that person is too great a sinner, then none of us really can have any confidence that we're going to be okay. Um, all of us are warped. All of us have that that kind of darkness within that we we do sense and and recognise and that the love of Christ is just too big and too good to let that be the thing that keeps you from the arms of Jesus. Wow. So don't let it disqualify you. Um, you know, Jesus has died for bigger things than that. Yeah. And the other thing is, I don't let it define you. Don't don't follow the culture script on this. Mm. And there's so much more to you than simply your sexual desires. Those are not insignificant, but they are not the great key to who you are. Find find out what that is through Jesus. I I love the the response of the woman at the well when she goes back to her own village. She says, "Come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did." Mm. And that sense of we only we only really have our lives explained to us and made sense of to us when we when we come to Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good word, Pastor Alberry. Uh, where can people find you? You got samalberry.com, is that right? Or uh... Uh, yeah, I don't. I'm, I'm so negligent with that website that I, I hesitate to, <laughs> to mention it. But so yeah, there's some information about me there. I work for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, right. so. You can find out about what I'm up to with there, and I do a lot with the Gospel Coalition, so a lot of my articles are there as well. I feel like I, I I'm sorry, I, I totally blanked on this. Um, just a quick word about the passing of Ravi. I know he was a friend of yours, right? And obviously a leader, a mentor, and the president of your organization. How, how have you re- responded to that? Yeah, well, we 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 mourn what we've lost and we rejoice at what he's gained. Mm. Um, he has given us a wonderful legacy and example to follow. Um, and I think the thing that Ravi most instilled in us on, on the team was again, that posture of, of grace and truth, um, behind every question, there is a questioner, and they don't try and win the argument at the expense of losing the person. So we, we miss him terribly. Um, yeah. But we we have so much that we can continue to learn from yeah. from his own example and, and the things that he taught us. So, and for as long as God keeps opening the doors for us as a ministry to to bring Christ to yeah. all these different places, we will we will continue to do that work. Yeah, man, but he is a ma- just a master at being so brilliant, so gracious and kind. And what you said, you win people over by love and graciousness yeah. while maintaining theological, logical rigor, but you don't use that to beat people into the kingdom. It just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. He just, he found that sweet spot that I, I don't know, I, maybe Tim Keller, really or other, you know, but there's few people that can do that well. Um, we, we need that more than ever because yeah. I think we, so much of the culture is you, you've got to own someone. Mm-hmm. rather than serving them and honoring them and, and, and you know dignifying them so yeah again the book is is god anti-gay if you haven't read it yet please pick it up uh, where books are sold uh, sam thanks so much for being on the show 
Oh, it's so good to see you again. Thanks for having me. You too. Hey, friends, if you found this conversation helpful, encouraging, engaging, discomforting, if it helped push you towards Jesus in any possible way and you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology and raw support the show for as little as five bucks a month. If you can't support the show, please consider leaving a review. If you can't leave a review, I don't know why you wouldn't be able to leave a, a review, but if you can't leave one, you just can't do it. You don't want to do it. Then please consider sharing Theology in Raw on your social media accounts and help funnel more people to these kinds of conversations, which I think are helpful to help people to think, to engage, to revisit their presuppositions, and to ultimately follow Jesus more faithfully, um, more honestly, um, with a biblical worldview. Okay. We will see you next time on Theology in Raw. Thanks for listening to the show. Mm-hmm.